Good morning, and a glorious morning it is. Welcome to the 2018 Nils Klim Seminar on the Politics of Inclusion, which is organized in honor of this year's Nils Klim Laureate, Francesca Refsum-Jensenius. We have asked Professor Siri Gloppen to introduce Jensenius and the panel speakers. Gloppen will also moderate the seminar. Siri Gloppen is Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Bergen and Director of the Center of Law and Social Transformation at University of Bergen and Christian Mikkelsen Institute. Siri, the floor is yours. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you for inviting me to be the chair today. It's, uh, it's a great honor and privilege, and I've been looking so much forward to this. And I want to start by congratulating you, Francesca. It is so well-deserved, and it's so, such a pleasure to see you receive this recognition. And I've been a great fan of your work since we met, which is already five years ago at Warwick University. And for those of you who don't know, Warwick is one of the centers on social, of social legal studies in the world. And I think that also, it's a bit symbolic because it marks some of the things that we share an interest in, which is the role of and effects of law in society and of regulations and governance. Um, and it is a privilege to welcome you all to the seminar today, um, which is on the law, the politics of inclusion, electoral quotas in India. And Francesca will present her work in the, in the lecture in the beginning. And then we have a very, very distinguished panel to join in the discussion afterwards. Uh, I will introduce each of them as they speak, but just so that you know, it's Pradeep Jibber, professor at Berkeley University, uh, University of California at Berkeley. It is Anne Walrop from Oslomet University. And then it is Pratap Mehta from Ashoka University in India. And um, I want to start, before giving the floor to Francesca, I want to start by introducing her to you briefly. Um, uh, Francesca started her university studies in Norway at the University of Oslo, but then moved abroad. Uh, so the master, her master degree is from, is from Duke University in the US, where she studied both political science and also Hindi, which is, is uh, I'll come back to that, but it signifies something very important about Francesca's work, which is the thoroughness of, there are no, no corners are cut in Francesca's work, which I think is, is very commendable. Um, and then she did her PhD at the University of California at Berkeley. The Holberg Prize Committee, in the reasons for awarding Francesca the prize, notes that she fulfills all the criteria of the Nils Klim Prize to perfection. She's an outstanding political scientist whose main work originally focused on electoral systems in India, but then moved beyond that, both thematically and geographically. And today it spans several disciplines, development studies, gender studies, comparative legal institutions, and economic agency. She masters both qualitative and 
quantitative methods. Her publication record is impressive, including a book, which will be the basis of the seminar and lecture today at Oxford University Press, and several peer-reviewed articles in high-profile journals. She has recently received prestigious grants for her work, and I want to add, two years ago, the Christian Mickelson Prize for the best article in development studies by, uh, by a young researcher. The committee also commends her for her willingness to share data with others and for many services to the profession. And I think that is something that we in the political science community in Bergen can attest to, the generosity in sharing, in sharing your work and insights. They also emphasize that Francesca has carried out very original studies, integrating quantitative and qualitative political science methods, and that she has a unique ability to handle complex theories as well as empirical data with the same clarity and elegance. And they, and they say that her career seems to be ideally suited as a role model for young researchers. And I think that's a wonderful attest to get from, uh, from the committee. So with that, I give you the floor. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Siri, and uh, thank you all for being here. I'm, I'm always really happy to be in Bergen. I, I've been here many times in the last years, and I'm always delighted to be here, but of course this is a, it's a very happy occasion, and um, I'm really happy to share this time with you and to all the panelists who, who, you'll introduce them more, but all of whom I've known for a long time, and um, um, I'm very happy to see you here. Uh, so, when I got the Nils Klimt Prize, they asked me to have a seminar focused on, on some of my work, and, and I decided to focus on uh, the book that I um, published last year, and to try to go beyond it, to, th to think beyond the conclusions that I draw, to, to enter some of the more difficult questions that I did not address in my book, and, and it's wonderful then to have this panel who will help me reflect on some of the difficult questions that I don't have good answers to necessarily, but, but uh, that I think we can we can do a, make an effort to try to understand better. And, and that topic that of my book is electoral quotas, uh, the politics of including um, what I've written on, minorities in Indian politics. And I got interested in this topic. Okay, now this is not working. So maybe I'll get the mouse if that's somewhere. Because now this, let's see if it works. I'll use this instead. Yep. I got really interested in the issue of politics of inclusion and electoral quotas uh, when I was a student in India. And I think coming from Norway, I had this, this uh, vaguely, uh, generally positive impression of electoral quotas. I thought quotas is a wonderful thing. And then I, I was a student at Delhi University, and there were these massive protests against quotas. And so for me, that became a, then a puzzle, something I became very interested in. Uh, and I started reading about it, trying to understand more about why people were so opposed to something I saw as a wonderful thing to include people who have been excluded in different ways. Whoops. Oh. 
And so as I started reading about quotas in India, I, I realized that there are lots of quotas in India. Quotas are a big topic in Indian politics. They have a lot of different types of quotas. And so this is the rough list. Uh, there are reserved seats or positions in public jobs for different communities. I'll get back to these strange acronyms for those who uh, are not India people. Um, educational institutions, political institutions at the national, state and local level. And there are also lots of discussions all the time about expanding quotas to other groups. Uh, women, for example, have quotas in villages, but there are talks of also getting quotas in the national parliament and in state assemblies. Um, the OBCs are the other backward classes in India who are a marginalized group, but not the most marginalized groups, um, want more types of quotas. They've been talking of getting quotas for religious minorities, including Muslims. And then forward castes, the upper caste communities have said, well, if everyone else is getting quotas, we also want quotas. So there are all these discussions about who should get it um, that are a very big presence in Indian politics. And of course, this slew of different policies raises lots of important political and normative questions, which is, okay, we put in place these policies that are very top-down, sort of the state trying to mess with society. Uh, do they do any good? Are they positive? And which groups should get quotas, which shouldn't? And really, uh, how far should you go in giving quotas? Can you give away 80% of positions to specific groups? Can you give all positions by groups, or do you only have sort of group-based allocation of jobs and, and positions? These are difficult questions, and as I started talking to people about quota policies, it became clear to me that people have very strong opinion about, opinion, opinions about them. But those strong opinions are to a large extent based on assumptions about what they do, not actual facts. We know very little about the empirical realities of what they lead to. And so uh, the result then was that I became very interested in trying to separate out these normative questions of what we should do from the empirical questions of what actually happens so the empirical insights can inform the normative debate. And so that's what I ended up then doing in what was my, my PhD dissertation and later book, was really make an effort in trying to say, let's stay away from the normative questions. Let's try to see uh, what has happened with one of these quota policies, and I then focused on one of my long list. I focus in the reserved seats for the scheduled castes, so that's the former untouchables, in India's state assemblies. Uh, and I looked at long-term effects of them, effects over a 30-year period, to see what has happened where you've had quotas and not. And so what I really try to do in the book is to not address the normative question that everyone asked me, which, are they a good thing? And I was like, I don't want to answer, but here are some facts. And so in the conclusion of my book, I got, got back to the normative questions, but not that much. And that the purpose of this seminar then is to actually go straight into those normative questions and try to think about, well, are they a good thing? Because, you know, that is what all of us kind of want the answer to, right? And so my plan now for, for the time I have is I'm going to give you a very brief summary of uh, a book. It's hard to summarize what's been sort of 10 years of work for me in, in 10 minutes, but I'll try. Um, and then I will end and get back to these normative questions, and then uh, hopefully the, the panelists will also then address some of these issues. And so then to, to uh, start with talking about the book. The group I have focused on, I think most of you probably have heard of the untouchable community, uh, they're also known as Dalit. The governmental name 
is scheduled caste, SC. And since I study a governmental policy, I have chosen to use consistently the governmental name, so SCs. Sometimes when I say I work on India, people say, oh, wow, that's so small and narrow. And I try to say, it's a very large part of the world. <laughs> I look at this minority group in India, which is about 200 million people. It's huge. Um, and this is a community that traditionally has been extremely marginalized, um, poor, often working as bonded labor, which is a nice work for agrarian slavery. And what they share, what they have in common, is not so much a culture as a shared social stigma of being considered outside. So it's a shared exclusion, more than a shared identity, which um, now, as that has been politicized over time as an identity, has also become an identity for some people, but traditionally it was mostly a shared stigma. And as India became independent and, and, and wrote an, a constitution, uh, which came into effect in 1950, it's quite amazing, there was this massive discussion of what to do about this community that was so marginalized. And what they did, from, for a political scientist, is amazing how you, know, you see a state really make an effort top-down to change society, to change social norms, to change discrimination. So what they did was to abolish untouchability, say this shouldn't exist anymore, they reserved positions, uh, which is the quotas, in politics, and they also made provisions for creating reserved positions in educational institutions um, and in uh, governmental jobs. They also put in place a national commission to monitor the pro progress from the community, and over time there's been lots of state um, schemes, policies, to try to improve the situation for this community. So what we have here is really an extreme case of a community that was extremely marginalized, a massive large state that made a large effort on paper to change things for this community. And so therefore, of course, the interesting question is, has this worked to some extent? What has happened over time? And what I find so fascinating about the Indian case here is that it's so large, there's so many examples, we have such a long time span, because quota policies of different types are used in something like close to 150 countries in the world now. But in many places, they've only been in, time for, uh, in place for a short period of time. And so what the Indian uh, case allows us to do is to really look at a uh, very long-term trend for a very extreme example of this, to try to un unpack and understand more about what such policies do in practice. I see here, we have to have some maps of India. This is a map of districts in India. What you see here is the share of scheduled caste SCs across India in 2001. What's important to realize here is that they are present in all of the country. They're about 16% of the population on average. In some places it's close to 0%, it goes up to about 50%. But they are not a majority anywhere. So the question is then, how do you design a quota policy? When you say you're going to have quotas, how do you do it? Now, the Indian electoral system is a single-member district, which means uh, like the American system or the UK system. So in every single electoral district, you elect one person to into politics. And so the way that they then chose to have this quota policy, these are now electoral districts. So these are the districts I have studied. These are state assembly constituencies, electoral districts across India. There are about 4,000 of them. And the way this quota policy was implemented was that uh, about 16% of them, so proportional to the population of SEs in India, were reserved for this community. And so you picked single-member districts across the country where only SCs could run for election, but everyone who lived there would vote. 
And so, again, they are distributed, SCs are distributed across the country, which means that for the most part, SC voters are a minority of the voters in any reserved constituency. And this is where I think it gets really interesting, because that choice of an electoral design, institutional design, shapes the outcomes that it has. And that discussion of how to design the quota system goes back to early 20th century India, and ended up in a massive discussion between two really important political leaders in India, Dr. Ambedkar and Gandhi, who were absolutely opposed. Both of them really cared about the marginalization and exclusion of the SC community, but they disagreed on how to improve their situation, what to do about them politically. So Dr. Ambedkar, who was the most prominent SC leader, said, well, we have to have our own representatives. We have to have politicians who speak for us. So he expressed what I refer to as wanting a policy of group representation. He wanted individuals who were, were elected as a mandate to speak for the SC community, who fought for their rights, um, and would then improve the situation for them in politics. And then Gandhi said, well, we don't want to separate them out as a separate minority group. They are just being excluded and marginalized, so we should try to include them, integrate them into the mainstream society. So we should not have quotas at all. We should just work really hard to reduce the, the discrimination against them. And then, after much discussion, they ended up with a compromise, which is the, the, um, the situation I just showed you on the map, where SE politicians are elected in reserved seats uh, and answerable to a majority of non-SE voters. And so that was then, uh, according to Gandhi's arguments, would help to integrate SEs into society rather than exclude them as a separate community. So there was a very well-articulated and active choice, an active discussion between designing a quota policy that would incentivize group representation and one that would incentivize group integration. And what I think is beautiful about that debate, which you know, was ongoing from about 1917 to 1932, is that it really um, is a very good example of the kind of, of, the, of discussions about how to design quotas that we see in the rest of the world now. How do you design it and what effects will it have? What they realize is that the institutional structure you put in place is an incentive structure that shapes how people behave. And so, of course, people don't always follow incentive structures. They can act not according to the incentives, but if they do so, it's sort of going against the institutional structure there within. And Dr. Ambedkar, who really wanted group representation, said very clearly, he was very disappointed with this, and he said, the result is that the legislators of the minority elected to the reserved seats, instead of being a champion of the minority, is really a slave of the majority. So he expressed very clearly that he thought, well, this will lead to political representatives who will not work for SC rights. And as part of my study, I combined, I collected a lot of, of quantitative data. I, was, uh, I also did about 100 interviews with politicians and activists across India. And so Ambedkar's impression of what was going to happen in many ways was very clearly reflected in the interviews that I did. So here, for example, I, I interviewed um, SC politicians, and one of them said, I have to work for all, for the majority of voters. How would I otherwise win, uh, win the election? Because, you know, SCs are only a small mi uh, min minority. All the candidates are SC. So you can't, you know, you can't really leverage that as an ethnic card, and you have to also win other voters. 
So, uh, you know, a lot of them expressed that if you seem too SC or um, you do not cater to the majority of voters, the party won't nominate you, you won't get elected. And, and one here I thought was quite nice as well is, I listen to everyone, I work for the majority group, but I give benefits only to areas that vote for me. Expressing something that's become, uh, you know, more and more prominent in the study of Indian politics, that more than people fa giving favours to their, their, their group, people give favours to their party and their supporters. And so, as a result then, um, if SEs don't work for SEs and they uh, behave the same as other politicians, you should really expect to see no development effects. And so what I'm showing you here is just the difference in SE-reserved and non-SE-reserved areas that were very similar, and the change over time in 30 years in development outcomes. Uh, and so basically what you're seeing here is that there's zero difference in development outcomes for SEs or others in areas that are reserved and not reserved on a bunch of different variables. So there's two things here. One is overall development effects. It's not that there is no development, it's just the same level of development in places that have SE politicians and other politicians, and the same level of development for SCs in those areas. There's just no difference. Which, one of the main arguments against quotas in the world and in India is that these minority politicians or women or whatever who come in will be useless and not do the job as, as well, in which case you would expect it to be worse development effects. We also don't see that at all. It's just no difference in development. Importantly, that doesn't mean there hasn't been any development for SCs in India. I just want to show you this one briefly. What I show here is over time, so 1931, 1971, 2001 and 2011, literacy rates for SCs, the SCs is the darker shaded area, and the lighter one is the non-SCs, and how that developed over time. So what you see in the first one is that on average, in 1931, about 2% of SCs were literate. Yeah? Literate means being able to read and write your name. 2%, right? Really small. Other people, 8%. Over time, that increases, and the gap between them decreases. So when we hear about the Dalit community, we hear about atrocities, we hear about terrible things, and those, those happen, and that is true. At the same time, things have gotten much better over time. So we need to keep those things in our head at the same time, that there is still discrimination, but things have gotten much better. At the same time, this story here of no difference in development for SEs in SE-reserved and non-reserved areas, I found when I spoke to people in India, some people have used that to say that the SE quotas have been a massive failure. Because there was an expectation that they would be group representatives and work for their community and create more development for the community. And that's where I would say that, no, if you look at the discussions and the, and the institutional design, you shouldn't expect it. But what you should expect is to see group integration. And so what I've also then tried to look at is evidence of group integration. How do we see that? How do we measure it? And that's harder to measure. It's easier to measure development effects than sort of unclear integration, discrimination, etc. And from my interviews, it became very clear to me that there were three aspects of the group integration story. One is that the SE politicians had to work for everyone, which means they interacted with everyone, they cared about everyone, they, um, they had everyone's interest in mind in a similar way as other politicians. 
which has an integrating effect. They become mainstream politicians in the sense of caring about all their voters, or yeah, at least the ones who actually vote for them. Then you have political parties. Political parties want to get into government. They want to win these reserved seats. So it's in their interest to recruit SE politicians and make them as competitive as possible. And then you have voters who, you know, the distinction between SEs and non-SEs has traditionally been really strong. But suddenly, if you're a voter in an SE reserved constituency, you have to interact with a politician. You have to treat that politician with some respect, otherwise they're not going to do any favors for you. They're not going to take, you know, care about, care about um, your interests. So you can't discriminate. So you have a forced interaction there where discrimination is not acceptable. And so in those three ways, SC politicians have gradually become more and more sort of integrated into mainstream politics. And the results of that are non-material. So while a lot of people have looked for material effects, including myself, what we see here are lots of non-material effects, including that the differences between SC politicians and others have evened out, the differences in politics in those areas that are reserved and others have evened out over time. SC elites have gained confidence and know-how and sort of become part of the political game. And I think for me, one of the um, most touching stories when I interviewed SC politicians was one who said that the first time he stood on the, on the stage, he was so frightened, he, he had so little confidence that all he could say was Jay Beam, so, you know, glory to Ambedkar, uh, he wasn't able to say anything more. And over time, he became a very strong and vocal politician. So he, um, he gained the confidence to be able to play the political game in a powerful way. And then we also see less discrimination against SEs over time. And as they become vocal and impressive and do a good job, others do show them respect. And those are important effects, but they're quite subtle and not that hard to measure. But I want to show you a little bit of data to exemplify uh, how I see this in the quantitative data. So what we see here is, uh, again, the dark is the... No, here it's actually opposite, sorry. The dark is non-reserved, the light is SE-reserved areas. This is the distributions of electoral turnout. And if you see the 1970s, you can see that the electoral turnout in the SE-reserved was much lower. So when an area became re reserved, turnout dropped by about 8 percentage points. Pretty massive. But over time, gradually, they uh, converged, they got, became more similar. And we see that in, in a lot of different variables. That they used to be less competitive, they became as competitive. There used to be fewer number of candidates there, they, you got a higher number of candidates. They used to be less able to mobilize voters and they didn't have the same party networks, over time they gained those party networks. So you see that over time they sort of become very similar to other politicians and their areas become very similar looking. Then here is another example, what I think is a good example of group, group integration, is that SC presence in cabinets increase. There are no quotas in cabinets. And so if you look at the first, let's say if this wants to point, it does want to point. If you see here in the 70s, the SCs had a much lower share of cabinet positions. And if you look at the type of cabinet positions, they also had sort of silly cabinet positions, not the important strong ones. And over time, that difference decreases. And so at the end here, there is still a difference. There's no difference in low-level ministries anymore. But there is still a difference in high-level ministries. But again, it's gotten better over time. And pretty much all the data I show in my book is, it's still not equal, but it's gotten better. Which I actually think is quite parallel to what we see with a lot of articles and things about women in politics. 
And then I think this, this little anecdote here, in a way, summarizes a lot of my findings of less discrimination over time. This is a politician here in the middle, in a meeting in Uttar Pradesh. And so what he said was, personally, I never experienced any discrimination. People would not dare. But if I come with Dalit SE friends, they will often not be offered tea. And I think that's interesting for at least three reasons. First of all, it's interesting because he's an SE politician. He says he never faces any discrimination, which for a group that's been severely stigmatized and discriminated against is huge. At the same time, he expresses that they would not dare to discriminate against him, which suggests that um, they might not have changed their biases or ways or thoughts, but they have changed their behavior. And again, this is something we see in a lot of places in the world, where it's easier to change behavior than social norms, but changing behavior also changes social norms very gradually. These are slow processes. And then finally, I think it's absolutely horrifying and fascinating that he says that even so, people who are not him, his friends, would still be discriminated against. We suggest that the effects are clearer at the elite level than at, it doesn't necessarily go down into society. And so you can, in a way, choose to interpret this in a positive or a negative way. Because if your expectation is that this should eradicate discrimination in society, they've been caught up for 65 years and that hasn't necessarily happened. But if you think of it as the fact that some people have entered the elite and don't face discrimination, that's a huge thing in itself, when the discrimination is based on a birth-based character that you can't get rid of. And so, very quickly, my book is basically six empirical chapters where I look at these different types of effects, and what we see is that over time, SE politicians have acted similar to other politicians, the result in society is that we see no difference in development or redistribution. There's a gradual integration of SEs into mainstream politics, and so therefore you see a convergence and more and more similar voting patterns in all sorts of, any variable political scientists find exciting. And then there's a gradual improvement and behavior uh, towards SE elites, and I see some evidence of an improvement and less discrimination in SE reserved areas, but it's, it's underwhelming. It's not, it's not huge. There's a plus point for, I guess, many Norwegians will like is SE politicians are less wealthy, fewer criminals, and more women. <laughs> but that's a, that's a little bonus point. <laughs> so back to the normative questions. Did this teach us anything about those normative questions? Can we use these empirics to understand more about political choices? And I think they can, although some of them are still very difficult. So here, here I go. And this is where I'm also hoping for help from the, from the panel. So are quotas a good thing? Well, I think it really depends on what you think is good, right? And that goes back to a normative question. What is good? I think it became very clear for me working on this that differently designed quota policies will have vastly different effects. And also, I mean, I've emphasized the institutional story here, but I also think that different contexts, different group identities, etc., you'll see different effects, right? It depends. Um, I also have seen very clear that changes are gradual, they're mostly non-material, and they're clearest at the elite level. Which means, if you want to change social norms, it's not enough at all with quotas. You have to work on lots of places at the same time. Which is, might be evident, but I, also, I often feel in quota debates, people are often very opposed or sort of expect too much from them. 
And then there's the second question, which groups should get quotas? And so what I've uh, suggested to you is that we have these policies that incentivize group representation, which would be, for example, the SEs being elected only by SEs. Um, I mean, it's quite typical. Majority-minority districting in the US is an example of it. Nominated positions is an example, where you put someone from a group clearly up as a representative of that group. In that case, that should be given to anyone where you want to maintain and emphasize a group identity, where that group itself is something you want to keep. And then you might get group representation, right? Of course, within a group representation, you will have different opinions of what the group interests are, so it gets complicated. But if the goal is emphasizing a group identity, then that's, that's the way to go. When it comes to policies of group integration, which I think is the one in India is an example of, and which are very common, and it's also the most common type of policy for women in the world, integrate them into mainstream parties, that you should give to anyone who is systematically excluded because of some attribute they can't change. So if someone has an attribute that means that they can't get into power, and however rich they get, however educated they get, however experienced they get, they are still discriminated against, then the quota is the way to go. The complicating thing in India then is that there are to be fair, a lot of groups who can claim that, right? And so, arguably, Muslims in India are discriminated against in many circumstances. That's argue, arguably, you know, to what extent that's the case. I think definitely the case for women, definitely the case for SCs, probably also the case for S scheduled tribes, who are the, another group that, that do have quotas at the moment. Um, and so, in a way, there are many, many groups that deserve deserve quotas. But that leads to the last question, right? But can you divide up all the positions? Do you really want a society where your representation or your, the way of, of giving positions or jobs is group-based? Where do you stop? And that's a discussion that's been going on in India. Because by putting in place quotas, you're giving prominence to some identities and not others. You are making people primarily an SC, or primarily a Muslim, or primarily a woman, while they do have other uh, cross-cutting identities as well. And so that's a clear drawback. It really contradicts the idea of liberal democracy, in a way. Um, and so the question then, in India, you have a, a single-member district system and you throw a lot of quotas at it. Why not just change the electoral system completely? You might think of a completely different way of creating representation. Um, and I think, I would say I agree with those in India who say that when you get to over 50% of positions being reserved, it becomes very difficult. And you can understand that the upper caste people then say, well, we need quotas too, because you know, these SEs, can, they run, only they run in these reserve positions, but they can also run in all these other ones. So they are actually then the best represented in Indian politics. Is that fair? But this again becomes political and normative questions um, that I'm going to throw over to the panel. So thank you so much for your attention. Thank you, Francesca. This was, this was an amazing lecture and a great setup for the panelists and the discussion. And I think you proved to everyone that the, the committee made a really, really, really good choice. And uh, I'm, we're also now very pleased to have this distinguished panel to, to help us start the discussion. And the first, um, the first, uh, Panelist, or the first speaker is uh, Pradeep Shipper. He's a professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. 
His research focuses on the politics of India, political parties and party systems. Uh, and his recent research is on the influence of ideology on party system change, religion and politics, um, elections and parties. Uh, Professor Schibber is not only Francesca's thesis advisor and mentor, but also a close and long-term collaborator and colleague. So I think you, you are really an obvious choice and very lucky that you're already in Europe and didn't have the yeah. big jet lag. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and it's indeed an honor and a real pleasure to be at a ceremony where Francesca is being awarded this prize because I think she's deserving. And more than deserving, I want to, uh, this is a moment of celebration, and I think we should celebrate Francesca's research, her work, and her ability to collaborate with all kinds of people, her generosity with her time and her data. And I think I want to thank you for spending some time at Berkeley and for setting an example, not only for people here, but also for many other students at Berkeley with how to be a good academic. So thank you so much. No, no, thank you. But of course, all of this doesn't come easy. And since I'm an American academic, I have to make bad jokes or tell awful stories. So this is for you, Mama. Yeah. <laughs> so I just remember the first time Francesco went for field work, and she and I have different renditions of this. And uh, obviously, she chooses, she chooses to forget the facts. She was, she was surprisingly nervous for somebody who's so confident, so good. And I remember she rented this place in Defense Colony, and she showed up. And she was kind of a little bit nervous. What am I going to do? Am I going to be doing field work? And I remember her just walking into the apartment and leaving me to carry all her heavy suitcases <laughs> up and down the steps. So being an advisor has many roles. One of them is carrying your student suitcases up these flights of steps. So, <laughs> But have, that's okay, <laughs> but that's all right. Thank you so much. No, but seriously, but, but thanks a lot. And it's going to be difficult for me to follow on the normative questions because I'm not a normative person mostly, and I leave that to Pratap. I thought he should go next, but he passed the buck to me. So what I'm going to be doing is doing something slightly different and taking off on some of the things Francesca talked about. And she hasn't seen this. She has no idea what's coming next. So this will be interesting to see what her reactions are going to be as well. And I think what I will do in this talk is build, talk about my own research. I'm a nerd, so that's all I do is you know, do some work. And the work, as all good research, Francesca was inspired by Francesca's work on quotas. And what we did was we followed up on what she was doing, but asked slightly different questions. And the questions we're going to focus on are not electoral quotas, but quotas in jobs and education. And instead of focusing on reservation for Dalits, which a lot of people have focused on, we're going to focus on a slightly different question, which is, what about inter-minority conflict? In other words, there's a lot, and minority, I'm using the word very loosely, there's been a lot of debate, especially now coming up in Europe, even in the US, that policies of affirmative action, reservation, minority integration are facing some trouble because there may be some inter-minority tensions as well. So what I'm going to do is talk about inter-minority tensions a little bit, and I'm going to explicitly discuss the issue, something that will warm our heart towards the end, on does prejudice against <coughs> Dalits actually change any dynamics of inter-minority conflict. So 
all of this builds on this book, Social Justice Through Inclusion, which I would all recommend. You should all read. At least she'll get one kroner for every book she sells, so she's <laughs> going to become rich by the end of it. But what I'm going to do is uh, talk about two things. First, and I'll get to this one at the very end, does the influence of quotas uh, address prejudice against Dalits and SCs, generally speaking? Does it do that? This is a theme she left with. And I'll give some empirical evidence for that. I don't want to tell you what I'm going to say yet. And I'm going to talk about quotas in jobs and educational institutions. They're a source of major conflict in India. And I'm going to focus mostly on inter-minority conflict. Much of the debate, at least in the US, where I live now, even in India, Francesca's work is an example, casts the debate in terms of there is a majority and there is an oppressed minority. But the thing is that on the ground reality is unfortunately a little bit messier. And there are many groups that actually claim that they are prejudiced, you know, they're being discriminated against. And secondly, as even as far as majority versus minority is concerned, the large debate is, are people prejudiced against them or is it political conflict? Which means, in the Indian case, the upper castes don't want to give anything to the Dalits. Not because they're prejudiced, they would, some would say, but because they actually fear that this is going to take, you know, they have these ideas of this is political conflict, that group will come to power, my group will be excluded from power, so it's about a political conflict. And in the US, this has taken a pretty, uh, this debate has been going on for a long time, and people say it's not about racism anymore, it's about public policy, that you actually can't design institutions at least liberal institutions in which some groups are given power because that's against, we, are don't, we have nothing against the African Americans, the white Americans would say, but actually it's just about that is not a way to organize society. It's about political power and the organization of society. And it is not about prejudice. Other people argue, wait a minute, it's all prejudice. This is all hogwash on top, right? This is all conversation. It's really about prejudice. So the question is, is it political conflict or prejudice? And then of course, the more interesting question in the Indian case, from my perspective, is what about intra-minority views? Which means there are minorities. And in this case, I'm going to focus on two minorities, the wrong word to use, so I'll discuss this in more detail if you wish. Is there are two groups, the OBCs, which Francesca hinted at, and Dalits, and the question is, do they actually support quotas for each other, or do they oppose quotas for each other, number one? And if they support and oppose quotas for each other, do they do it because they're prejudiced, or do they fear political conflict? Right, then that's the question I'm going to address, try and address in this talk today. So what happened in India was quotas in jobs in education were extended to the other backward classes. Other backward castes, other backward classes, word is used synonymously. Previously, no electoral quotas for the OBCs, but only quotas in jobs and educational institutions. And once these quotas were introduced, there were obviously a backlash from the upper castes, right? And that's well established, lots of people have talked about it. So the question then is, do Dalits and OBCs support quotas for each other? What is the evidence? Do they actually do so or do they not do so? And if they do so, why don't they do so? The argument is, the observational evidence suggests that actually Dalits and OBCs may oppose quotas for each other. In fact, surveys have shown that half of the OBCs said that Dalits should not have quotas. A third of the Dalits said OBCs should not have quotas. Then, of course, the question is, is this opposition based on prejudice or political conflict? We don't know. There is some survey evidence, in fact, pretty good survey evidence, that suggests that OBCs are actually prejudiced against Dalits. And, in fact, there was a survey, the Indian Household Human Development Survey, 
They interviewed over 40,000 households, and 40% 40 of, the, of the OBCs said they practiced untouchability. Much as, and the same proportion of forward caste said they practiced untouchability, and 60% of Brahmins said they practiced untouchability. So in other words, there is clear evidence, at least in those surveys, that, there is, um, that OBCs are actually on the ground, maybe discriminating against Dalit. So you know, in other words, there is some evidence that that may indeed be happening. So to address these questions, what we did was, did a survey experiment. There's somebody smiling here, right? And we, this was carried out in 200 assembly constituencies in the state of Uttar Pradesh in 2015. The sample size is small, 7,500, not that many people, right? Sorry, <laughs> right? And what we did was, given this is the land of experiments these days, uh, we did, there was a control question, which is, so this is, by the way, for those of you who want to do field work in India, this is the best or anywhere else in the world since there are lots of people from CMI here. How do you do run an experiment in India? Because it's very difficult, and this is really important practical advice, on how do you randomize? How do you make sure that the survey is distributed randomly? You don't want to give the person who's doing the survey any control, because who's actually administering the survey on the field, because you don't know what they're going to do. So what we did was, you love this, we took all the questionnaires, we printed them, and we shuffled them in a box. And then we just gave the person the shuffled questionnaire. So they actually had to go and just ask the question that was in the next questionnaire, and they had no control over it. So the old-fashioned paper shuffling worked fabulously. Of course, if you have an iPad and you can do random, gener you know, random generation of prompts, that could also work, but we don't have that option. So what we did was, so there's a control question which is, should the policy of reservations for Dalits slash OBCs and jobs in education continue? We were just, that was the question people were asked. We then asked two prejudice prompts. The first prejudice prompt was people were given a prejudice against OBCs, which is some people say that OBCs are aggressive in nature and display hooliganism. We can disagree with this, but that's, that's a common prejudice in UP. And for Dalits, it was that some people said that Dalits spoil the environment they work in. So, you know, that's a weak, you know, that's a prejudice question. Are people prejudiced? They would be responding to that. And finally, there was what we call a scarcity prompt, which is a fight over political resources, which is that due to reservations, common people find it difficult to get admitted to a good college and are unable to get a job, which is saying that, listen, these reservations are actually not good because there's a policy consequence to these reservations. So in other words, people were given one of four options. You know, this was randomly distributed. So some people got the control, some people got prejudice prompts, some people got the scarcity prompt, right? So in other words, we have a control condition, we have prejudice prompts, and we have a scarcity prompt, right? And then we can see which of these actually makes a difference. So what do we find? What we find is that as far as Dalits are concerned, there is, and if you, uh, does this work? Yes. So, is it working? No, you said you turn it on. Little details. Okay. Ah, here we go. So this is the upper castes in the solid line. That's the OBCs. And we are asked, do, the, do you support Dalit reservation? So among those, com compared to the control condition, those who said prejudice, were actually far less likely to support reservation for Dalits among both the OBCs and the upper castes. And as far as the scarcity prompt was concerned, sorry, as far as the scarcity prompt was concerned, it is only the OBCs who were actually uh, 
opposed to reservations for Dalit. So in other words, as far as if you're an other backward caste, you actually don't want reservation for Dalits, not only because of the political conflict that they're competing over scarce resources, but also because you're prejudiced against them. As far as OBCs are concerned, which is the other backward caste, what do we find? We find first that the upper castes and the Dalits have, so this is the upper castes, again the solid line, this is the Dalits, the dashed line, and what you find is no prejudice against the OBCs, prejudice prompt doesn't do anything, but as far as Dalits are concerned, they oppose reservation for OBCs because they believe that it actually could have a policy consequence as far as they are concerned. Then, of course, being good academics, I think I have just a couple of minutes left, I'll go through it pretty quickly. We ran some controls and we get the same effect. It doesn't change. If you control the number of Dalits in an area or the number of OBCs in an area, it actually does not change the results at all. But here's the final one, which I'm just, I did this just to please Francesca's heart. We even actually then looked at, was there electoral quotas for Dalits in the areas, right? where we administered the survey, and the argument was that if there were reservations for Dalit, and Dalit politicians were elected in those areas, we should see different levels of prejudice against Dalits or not. Do we see that or not? And what we find is that in areas that are reserved, right, these are the reserved areas. Once again, we have the upper caste and the OBCs, and do they oppose, do they support reservation for Dalits? So what we find is that as far as the reserved areas are concerned. What we find is this is the reserved area and this is the reserved area. That in reserved areas, neither the prejudice nor the scarcity prompt makes a difference. Which means if the area has a the SC politician who's been elected, and these results are, are a little bit weak, but I should share them with you regardless, the people, neither the OBCs nor the upper castes display either prejudice or actually believe that scarcity is going to influence their attitudes towards Dalits getting jobs, through there being reservations for Dalits. In other words, no prejudice, no uh, scarcity. That's not what the fight is about. In unreserved areas, on the other hand, what you find is that both the prejudice prompt as well as the scarcity prompt makes a difference. In other words, and the results are consistent in unreserved areas, in areas where there is no elected Dalit politician, what you find is that actually OBCs are equally prejudiced. OBCs and upper caste are equally prejudiced against Dalits. In fact, if you look at the data very carefully, OBC levels of prejudice against Dalits are a little bit higher than that of the upper castes. And of course, as far as the scarcity prompt is concerned, Upper castes are not opposing reservation for Dalits on grounds of scarcity of, re or scarcity of jobs, but the OBCs definitely are. And there's good reason for why that should be the case. So, what do we find? Where am I? I'm going the other way. Okay, conclusion. So, in conclusion, minorities may oppose quotas for each other as well. In other words, the idea that just because there are minorities, they may actually all work together is not necessarily the case. What we find is that, at least in the Indian case, OBC opposition to quotas for Dalits is based on both prejudice and scarcity. Dalits, on the other hand, oppose quotas for OBC, not because of prejudice, but largely because of scarcity, because they feel there's going to be a political conflict over who has jobs. 
And ironically, and this is the most surprising finding, and there could be good historical reasons for why this is the case, the upper caste accept quotas more readily despite the reservations. The impact of prejudice or scarcity among minorities is greater than upper caste opposition to quotas to these groups. And I think what's most interesting is this, is that this has in obvious, this potential inter-minority conflict has obvious policy and political consequences, which means that if you're thinking of expanding quotas for Dalits or expanding quotas for other for OBCs, you can play one group off against the other. And I think a lot of that is going on on the ground as well. In other words, these results are somewhat consistent with politicians using the minority groups and playing them off against each other so that they can actually get the outcomes they would like, right? So just once again, Thank you, Francesca. And I just thought building on what you've done, we should just extend it a little bit further and ask a slightly different question. But all the inspiration came from your work. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure that I can, I can see that Francesca is very eager to respond. But you'll have to <laughs> keep <laughs> Just wait for a little while longer. Uh, the next uh, panelist, the speaker, is Anne and Waldrop. And uh, she's professor of anthropology at uh, what is now the second newest university in Norway, <laughs> the Oslobet University. And, um, uh, and she has a PhD in anthropology. Uh, from the University of Oslo. She's done extensive research in New Delhi, in India. She's published widely on the topic of women's agency, class relations, and political development in India. She's on the board of the Nordic Center in India and leader of the steering committee for the Network of Asian Studies in Norway and very central, very central person, person in India studies in Norway. Um, and Francesca has uh, told me that you first met at Berkeley when you and your husband, Sainz and Salaxon, were, were guest researchers in, uh, at Berkeley. And she talks about both of you as very important to her and also important for her decision to come back to Norway, which I think we are all <laughs> very grateful for. And, and also said that you were the first person who sort of read and gave feedback on her PhD proposal and that that was very important. So, the, the, which is also why she's, she was very happy that you accepted to, to be part of the seminar today. And uh, your presentation today is entitled Women, Politics and Quotas in India, a view from below. <laughs> Thank you for that very kind introduction. Um, it's sort of like, as we say in Norway, jumping after Virkula coming here now. <laughs> Um, so, um, contrary to the two other speakers, I do not have a PowerPoint, and in order to sort of present my material within the 15 minutes I've got, um, I'm going to read a manuscript, which is fairly boring, uh, but it's sort of like to try to keep track of what I'm going to say. So, um, first I would like to start by congratulating Francesca. Uh, on the Niels Klim Prize. And I'm really honored to, I was really honored to be asked and a bit surprised actually. Uh, and um, I'm so happy to be here uh, and to be able to um, 
celebrate you uh, and to talk about something which is really in my interest, and I've been in my interest for many years, which is uh, uh, politics, um, minorities, or not many that minorities, but also, and then I'll talk about also uh, women, uh, which I've also been interested in. So then I'll start my presentation. So what I will do today is to look at the case of women in politics in India. In 1993, with an amendment to the constitution, the Indian government introduced one-third reserved seats for women to village and municipal councils all over India, what Francesca referred to as the Panchayats. While India, with this move, may not have seen the emergence of a million Indira Gandhis, as someone uh, said, referring to the first prime minister, uh, it has certainly seen the emergence of more than one million women elected for public office. According to some estimates, this is more than in the rest of the world combined. I will share some findings from my own quality research concerning women's political activism and participation in two unauthorized slum settlements in Delhi. Taking such a bottom-up approach, I will present three cases of women in the slum that are involved in politics. So rather than presenting um, quantitative data, statistics, like uh, the others. Uh, my research is anthropological, it's very bottom-up, it's case-based. Um, so these uh, three women I will present are, one, a woman elected uh, on a reserved seat to the position as municipal councillor. Two, the local leader of the women's wing of the Congress party in the slum. And three, a grassroots activist that for many years had a high standing in the community among women. And in addition to these women, I will also present the case of a male municipal councillor. And from this very local platform, I will discuss the wider consequences of women's political participation. And I'll start out with a brief vignette concerning my meeting with a woman elected on a reserved seat to the M position, MC position in the slum, municipal councillor. The sitting is a bustling slum on the outskirts of Delhi on the Sunday afternoon in October 2012. And I am on my way to meet the newly elected female municipal councillor occupying a seat reserved for women. There are two elected municipal councillors covering one part each of this slum, here called Janata Camp. And these seats have interchangeably been reserved for women for the past elections. I'm doing research on women's political participation and relations towards the state in, slum in two slum settlements in Delhi. And thus a few days earlier, I'd walked into the office of this female MC in the hope of getting an appointment for an interview. However, at that time, only her husband was present. He told me that he was the one interested in politics and that he had wanted to stand for election as an independent. But since the seat was reserved for w women, he had asked his wife to stand in his place. Now, he told me, he was the one manning the office on an everyday basis, since she had a very busy schedule looking after home and children. But that she came to the office every Sunday to sign papers and hand out pension checks, checks which are some of the, her MC duties. So when I come back on Sunday, the small office is crowded with people, and both the municipal councillor and her husband are sitting behind the desk. I start the interview by asking why she decided to stand for election as a municipal councillor. And she doesn't reply. She sort of looks away and, and smiles very timidly, sort of looking on the side of me, um, obviously feeling embarrassed, until her husband eventually says, 
Please, she's only a woman. This description of a visit to the office of a female municipal councillor elected on a reserved seat in a Delhi slum provides a, for many, shocking and discomforting glimpse into the side effects of this reservation system. Because women in India traditionally, due to gendered cultural practices tying them to the private domain of home and family, are not supposed to participate in politics, and because hegemonic cultural notions regard politics as a male domain, the reservation system that was introduced in 1993, where women get 33% reserved seats to village and municipal councils, only produces women as proxies. In other words, it is argued. The reservation system only encourages men with political ambitions to get their wives to stand for election in their place. So this brings me to a central question, which already has been brought up here. Why are quotas used in politics? And drawing on Fraser's concepts of three dimensions of social justice, redistribution, political participation, and recognition, Francesca's book discusses this. And justice to Fraser, and here I quote, Jensenius on page seven, um, quoting uh, or talking about uh, Fraser, Justice is about parity in social life, and achieving this entails overcoming three types of hurdles that prevent people from participating in social life on an equal footing." End of quote. So this perspective then looks at what effects quotas in politics, in her book discussing SCs, um, have on their low socioeconomic standing in society, two, on uh, SC's ability to voice their concerns to those in political power, in other words, increase their political participation, and three, the historically social and cultural low standing in society, where they have been heavily stigmatized and regarded as biologically inferior. Quotas in politics are also typical examples of what one in, within the field of gender and development, where I do most of my research, terms strategic gender needs. Here, strategic needs, uh, gender needs are opposed to practical gender needs. Whereas practical needs are interventions aimed at improving women's immediate daily life within the socially accepted gender roles, strategic needs involve uh, more long-term goals aimed at changing the very gender norms and structures. Typical examples of the first are digging wells and providing water so that women, because it is women that collect water and other things for reproduction of the household unit, do not have to walk far to collect water. It eases their everyday lives. A typical example of the latter is to increase women's participation in decision-making by, for instance, introducing research seats for women in political institutions. So now back to the question, what kind of effects will mass numbers of women in politics, as we get with 33% reservation system in India, have? In terms of pure numbers, it obviously increases women's representation, at least on paper. But does it have any transformative effects on women's recognition and status in society? Will it address women's pragmatic gender needs, what in the language or quota politics could be termed women's group interests? And maybe most importantly, will it change the power structures and have any transformative effects on society? The cases I present, uh, based on in-depth qualitative research in Tuzla, Maris and Dela, will of course not be able to give any definite answers to these questions, but the findings are still informative with regards to how everyday politics at a municipal level is performed. So I will start by presenting a male uh, municipal councillor, here called Mr. Agaval, who has a high standing in the area. When I started my research in 2005, it was him most people would point me towards when I asked where they would turn with problems. 
He had started out his political career as a sort of assistant to a former Congress politician for the area that a lot of people talked highly about. Then he had tried to stand for election as an independent, but without success. Then again in 2007, the seat was reserved for women, and he had his wife stand for election in his place. And this is not the uh, husband or the wife I talked about earlier, this is the other seat. Because his wife had never been in politics before and had no interest in it, and he realized that he needed the women's vote, he had allied up with a popular female grassroots activist in the area that I will present soon. Thereby, his wife had won and become municipal councillor. When I met him again in 2012, that seat was no longer reserved for women, and he had recently been elected as a municipal councillor himself. I met with him several times, and once when I came in the car together with him from the water department, we were stopped by a crowd in the street on our returning to the slum. The people were agitated and needed his help because there was no running water. While I was waiting on the side of the crowd, a couple of women turned towards me and said, Mr. Agaval is the leader of us all. Later on, when I asked him why he was in politics and how he regarded his political works, he said, among other things, I make a path for people. By that I understood him to mean that he was a kind of broker or fixer between the people in the slum and the government, that he helped fix the water connection when it was dry, that he helped them with their pension checks and other issues. And this he could do because he had worked for several years as an assistant to a Congress politician and thereby had acquired good contacts in the government and knew how the political system, where clientelism plays an important part, worked. So one important basis for his power and his high standing in the area that he was regarded as their leader was that he had contacts and connections so that he actually could help people, that he could make a path for them. Now I turn to brief presentation of the two female politicians activists that both, in contrast to Mr. Agarwal, who live in a nice flat in an area next to the slum, live within the slum itself. So these are not uh, people with a lot of money. Uh, neither of them has stood for election, but they have still for a period been quite important leaders of women. One of them is the women's wing representative of the Congress party in the slum. For a period when the Congress party held the MLA position for that area, she was regarded as quite powerful by the women in the area because she, with her contacts directly to important Congress leaders, was someone who actually could help them. The other has for a couple of decades been a popular grassroots activist leading an NGO of women in the slum. She is the one that Mr. Agarwal came to when the MC seat was reserved for women and he wanted his wife to stand for election in his place. Both these women then have been regarded as important leaders by the women in the area, who the women would turn to get assistance. Both, however, have over the last couple of years lost power. And when I've been back lately, no one refers to them as leaders anymore. So what was the basis for the power in high regard and why have they lost it? The leader of the Women's Wing of Congress was popular because she, as a member of the ruling party, actually had links directly to important people higher up in the system. And as the leader of the Women's Wing for that area, she was sent to meetings and courses. Her role within the Congress party, however, was limited to drawing the women's vote. The way she talked about her position, she seemed to be given very little power within the party. Her role was mainly to draw women to the party and then leave the actual politics to men. Still, as long as the Congress party was in power, she held an important position. However, when the MLA position at the next election was lost to another party, she lost her position as an important person. When I came back and asked around about her, people just shrugged and said that she is not a leader any longer. The last case is the grassroots activist. 
She became the leader of an NGO aimed at empowering the women in the slum back in 1993, when an external NGO did some work in the slum to improve the living conditions through self-help with a special focus on women. She has had a fairly high standing among the women because she mobilizes women on causes that appeal to them. Her courses are thus typically directed at improving the practical gender needs of the women by focusing on clean drinking water, sweeping and garbage disposal to improve the hygiene in the area, and anti-alcohol campaigns. Thus initially, when I met her, she talked very negatively about the male leaders, like Mr. Agarwal, because they distributed alcohol to the men in connection with elections, which she claimed increased violence in the slum, both domestic and in public areas. She had a very personal motivation for being a leader of the women, and she told me several times about hardships she had experienced while a, a young newly married woman at her in-law's house. For instance, that she initially, initially only gave birth to baby daughters, and her in-laws wouldn't feed them and told her to go, go back to her parents' house. That was one reason she and her husband had moved to Delhi. So her popularity as a leader of women in the slum rested largely on the fact that she talked about issues that really mattered to women. Furthermore, her husband, who had 12 years of schooling, but had hurt his arm in a printing press many years back and was not supporting the family economically, supported her activism. He helped her with writing letters and provided emotional support. After he passed away in 2014, her oldest adult son, who lived with his wife and child in the same house in the slum as his parents, kicked her out of the house, so she had to move in with female relatives. Although she has the support of female relatives, in particular one of her daughters and some in-laws, she has not regained her position as a leader of the women in the slum since. So summing up the cases uh, of these um, women that for a period had a fairly high political standing, we see that four things characterize their political uh, activism. One, they are in politics because they are women albeit for different reasons, but the gender as a woman lies at the bottom, and this also applies to the woman elected on reserved seat. Two, and linked to the first point, they mainly mobilize other women, and are quite successful in that regard, because they promote causes that are regarded as women's causes, that is, causes similar to the practical gender needs of water, toilets, and hygiene, and are active in anti-alcohol campaigns and assist women that are victims of domestic abuse. And three, their ability to go into politics and to continue is for all of them dependent upon the goodwill of the male head of the family household where they live. That is, in most cases, their husbands, but can also be father and mother-in-law or adult sons, if widows. This fact is a very explicit sign of how encompassing the gender and family structures are in society. And four, they have very limited political capital. They lack a network of contacts in the political parties or the bureaucracy that they can exchange favors with so that they can manage to get things done for the slum dwellers. In other words, they lack patrons higher up in the clientelist network. And since they all live in the slum settlements, they also lack economic capital. So, coming now to an end. What conclusions can we draw from these four cases in terms of what affects quotas for women uh, to municipal councils may have on redistribution, representation, and recognition, as was the three uh, things mentioned by Fraser. At a first glance, the picture I painted is a rather bleak one. With regard to redistribution, there are no signs at all in my material that quotas have had any effects. As for recognition, women seem to lose out because the recognition in society in general is rather low at the outside, something which comes out clearly when we see that women's prospects for going into politics depends largely on the goodwill and support of male family head. 
However, what comes out of these cases is that because women actually do turn out to vote in India, they will support a female candidate that mobilizes along women's pragmatic gender needs. That is the group interest, as long as she's likely to deliver. So male politicians and party bosses need women to get the women's vote. This was evident in the case of the Congress leader of the women's wing. This was also evident in the case of the grassroots politician that became the ally and supporter of Mr. Agarwal when the seat was reserved for women. And of course, it is evident in the case of the female proxy that actually has been elected on a reserved seat to the position as municipal councillor because her political ambitious husband needed her. Thus, based on my material, we may conclude that quotas for women actually do increase women's representation in politics. Some would dismiss this and say that this is only a representation in pure numbers as proxies. However, even the women, woman in my example will have to go to the municipal council meetings alone and vote on matters there. And although when I asked the woman in the first case how she knew what to vote for at these meetings, and her husband responded on her behalf that he told her in advance what to vote. There's no doubt that her very participation at the meetings, that she attends this meeting without her husband, will necessarily have an empowering effect on her individually. Thus, with this reservation practice now having been in effect in villages and municipalities all over India for 25 years, an enormous number of women had been exposed to politics at this very minimum level. Because my material also show that women support activists that promote their group interest, this might also entail that an increase in women's representation would ensure that women's issues and causes will be put higher on the political agenda. However, because the state operates along clientelist networks that are mainly based on male networks where women are excluded, again an indicator of women's low recognition in society, women's politi women politicians have problems delivering the way men can. In this regard, NGOs and gongos in different states and districts all over India have worked hard to provide courses and support for women municipal councillors elected on reserved seats so that they get contacts and know where to turn to get things done for the constituencies. So in this regard, it's also looking better. There are not that many proxies anymore. There are very, a lot of people have written also about much more positive cases than I have in my material. So why have quotas not led to more transformative changes? The first and fundamental reason is that quotas in themselves do not change the patriarchal structures in society. The second reason is that client networks uh, in Indian politics are male-dominated. This makes local female politicians dependent upon uh, male patrons. This indicates that while quotas may be necessary for political empowerment of women, it is far from sufficient. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Uh, the last uh, speaker of the, uh, in this panel is Pratap Panameta. Uh, Pratap is now the Vice Chancellor of uh, Shoka University, the rising star of the universities in, in New University in India. Um, uh, he's been a professor at Harvard, uh, at JNU, at the, the, in Delhi, at the Global Faculty Program at NYU Law School. Uh, he's a major commentator in non-Indian politics. He's published widely on political theory, constitutional law, society of politics in India, governance, political economy, international affairs, and also, not least, is the chair of the Holberg Prize Committee. Uh, and from Francesca's point of view, and actually also from mine, 
most importantly, the former president of, uh, of CPR, Center for Policy Research in Delhi, where Francesca uh, spent time and was based during fieldwork in Delhi and was able to benefit from your advice. So, please. It's a great uh, honor to be here, and frankly, a little bit intimidating after this wonderful uh, panel. Um, first of all, just to reiterate my congratulations to Francesca for not just writing a splendid book, but as I'll try and demonstrate in the next 10 minutes or so, really opening up a massive research agenda. And I think, I think that's really the kind of the, the, the test of a great contribution, not just whether it kind of establishes the argument it sets out to prove, but whether it's the kind of work that you, know, you can discuss for the next 10 years or so to come. So I won't answer the normative questions you raised. Uh, uh, I, 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 partly for, for a reason which I, I meant, because I think uh, we often forget that between the empirical and the normative, there's this interesting category, the political, which neither is empirical in a conventional sense nor purely normative. And these are fundamentally political questions, uh, which we should be a little bit reluctant to kind of, as moral philosophers, just come and legislate out of uh, uh, existence. So what I'll try and do is perhaps, in the spirit of Francesca's work, uh, raise kind of three or four larger questions that I think that come out of the work. Because um, one, one of the great, I think, power, uh, one of the things that makes this book such a powerful book is not just the fact that she takes an important topic and exemplifies how to do interdisciplinary work around it, uh, not just quantitative and qualitative, but anthropological, historical. But it's also a good example of how India can actually be used in comparative politics, where India has gone from being this obligatory footnote in every theory of comparative politics, which is, this is the exception, right, to Barrington Moore, Huntington, so on and so forth, to actually now saying that, you know, the future of democratic theory um, actually is going to be decided in India. And, and I, think, I think Francesca's use of that case is, is really a very, very powerful one. So when I read Francesca's work, um, three or four things I think stand out, and 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 I'll, I'll I'll say them in a way that is both a kind of critique and an invitation to extend your argument. I think more 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 generally uh, uh, than you have in the book, um, but also to draw out its wider implications. So. Francesca's book has come out at a moment where I think there's a paradox in thinking about democracy. It's a book about representation. And yet many would argue that in liberal democracies there's a deep crisis of representation, right? Uh, there's a deep crisis of representation both at an empirical institutional level, which is that central hope of liberal democracies, which is are representatives a good conduit through which to express, as it were, the will of the people, just to put it very crudely. Uh, to what extent do our institutional, does our institutional design actually recognize and realize that function of representative democracy, right? And many would argue that in an interesting way, uh, while we all kind of believe and are firmly committed to the idea that representative democracy is, perhaps one of the greatest inventions uh, in thinking about regime forms. 
We are at the same time worried, deeply worried about what actually the representative function actually does, right? And there's a way of interpreting Francesca's findings, which I think would perhaps be a little bit more pessimistic about what the representative function does, right? Now, one way of interpreting Francesca's findings is, goes back to an empirical result she demonstrates, which is it actually doesn't make a difference to development outcomes, right? Whether the constituency was a reserved constituency or not a reserved constituency, right? Now, when I read a result like that, I actually conclude, or, is, or this is a question in a way, right? Uh, would one conclude that why did one assume that the representative function would actually make a difference to the development outcome in the first place? What is the underlying mechanism? And actually, what is the underlying theory that would lead one to hypothesize, right? that the nature and form of representation from a constituency would actually make a difference. Uh, the reason to ask this question in the Indian case, in particular, is because, as you know, <coughs> technically representatives actually have very little power, right? Representatives are supposed to legislate, not produce development outcomes for their constituencies. Such development outcomes that they actually produce, or the legislators that get re-elected over and over again, right, are not ones that are traditionally associated with development outcomes. Uh, those, are the those are the representatives that perform the function where in the absence of a full capacity state, can you use social capital and personal networks to solve the problems of a significant number of constituents as pertains to their, as it were, particular interests, right? So I think the first question that Francesca's work raises really is what is the function of representation, right? And to me, the story she's telling is actually a story of double exclusion, not a story of inclusion. She presents it as a story of political integration, but it's a story of dub double exclusion in the sense that she's talking about a group of people who are historically marginalized uh, in one of the most humiliating forms of marginalization any society has ever known, right? They then get to have representatives, right? SC representatives, whose power and authority comes from the fact that they speak in name of that group or supposedly speak in name of that group. But the institutional structure is such that the only group they can't effectively represent is their own, right? Because their electability depends upon moderating, as it were, their demands. In such a scenario, what, how do we actually describe this person, right? This SC representative. It's not a representation as in delegation. It's not representation as in even authorized to speak powerfully on behalf of the group they're representing, right? So what is the function of representation here? And I would argue that I think the only function that representation is performing here is that just by virtue of having a representative, the group identity actually comes into existence. And this is important to remember in the Indian context because as Francesca pointed out, SC is a legal category. It's not a social category arguably now becoming a cultural and political category, right? And if you were to argue how does the political identity of the SC group come into existence, you would argue it's 
just by virtue of having representatives of this kind, right? So in a sense, they are actually creating a group identity, but their function cannot be understood in terms of the conventional functions of representation, namely delegation, empowerment, and so on and so forth, right? So that's, I think, the pessimistic story that I think comes out of the book, right? The slightly more optimistic story that Francesca gives, uh, which is really about the integration effects of such representation. Uh, and she really gives a very powerful account of the fact that while the development outcomes may not have changed very much, uh, there is actually an integrative effect in terms of incorporating more SC politicians into the mainstream. Now, to my mind, this integrative effect, I think, opens up a, a really interesting research uh, area, which is how much of this integrative effect that you're seeing is a function of the fact that it's a reserved constituency versus the integrative effect of first-past-the-post political systems, right? Uh, what I have in mind in this, and, and, and this is really the larger kind of challenge I want to throw out, because she ended with this question, you know, should we think of revising India's electoral system? And there is a big debate in India. There are many people frustrated with the current representative system. To my mind, the greatest normative claim for a first-past-the-post system, right, and it's not one that we often pay attention to, was that a constituency, a geographically demarcated constituency, was the closest proxy you had for representing society as a whole, right? So it has rich poor, it has rich voters, poor voters, upper caste voters, right? It's, it's you might say, as randomized, right? A selection that you can actually have of a constituency, right? And the greatest normative effect of that is that mathematically you're likely to be in situations where you actually have to talk to people you otherwise might not have had to talk to, right? It can come around to two mechanisms. One is the me mechanism that Francesca describes, right? Which is these SC politicians are integrated because they now do represent upper caste voters as well, at least by virtue of their geography. Or you could have a different dynamic kick in of integration, which is two candidates, let's say two candidates, whose votes in their traditional upper caste constituencies are divided, right? And the deciding political power might be held by a small minority group, right? Sometimes even a 5% minority group can actually make a difference, right? Now, you could actually have constituencies, in a sense, or groups being empowered through either of those mechanisms. One, because they have a guaranteed representative. The other, because they actually hold the deciding vote between two existing groups. Right? And I think one of the really interesting agendas would be to test which of these two mechanisms is more empowering in the long run. In the United States, for example, as you know, there is this literature which argues that gerrymandered constituencies are actually more disempowering <laughs> than constituencies which actually have political mobilization where African Americans can actually become the deciding vote between two different constituencies. And I think your book really opens up, I think, a area which we have not looked at as deeply in the long run, uh, in, in, for a long time which is what are the integrative effects of first-past-the-post systems? And what are the specific political configurations 
under which those integrative effects actually kick in. Uh, because, again, when I read your evidence, I say, wow, this is a good plus for the first past the post political system more than it is actually for the CST uh, sort of quota story. The third and final large story which I want to draw on, kind of linking Pradeep's and Francesca's uh, uh, presentations, is so as has been pointed out, the Indian quota story is an extremely complicated one, right? Uh, there are many different kinds of quotas, jobs, education quota, who are the beneficiaries, and so forth. Two things about this quota story, I think, are are, are, are things that deserve, I think, deeper, uh, deeper scrutiny, um, right? So the first is, if you ask the question, who deserves quotas, right? So who should be the beneficiaries? What should be the instrumentality of instituting quotas? At the time of independence in India, there was a consensus that whichever way you cut it, Dalits, SCs in Francesca's schema, have to be the beneficiaries of those quotas because every multiple line of oppression converges on them, right? Not just economic deprivation, but it is important to remember extraordinary forms of social humiliation and marginalization, right? The same narrative does not necessarily apply to other marginalized groups like the OBCs, right? I think the Muslim case is much more complicated because of a specific political history and, and, and geographically very variegated, right? Now, the big challenge for India, right, it, the normative challenge is, how do you take an instrument like quotas, whose moral justification was very self-evident in the case of Dalits, and extend it to other groups? That extension can have two possible consequences. On the one hand, you can say it includes more groups, right, within the political domain. On the other hand, that extension can also do away with the specificity of the Dalit experience, right? And by specificity, I mean a particular kind of ethical marginalization that they were subject to, which no other group in India has been subject to. Right? And I would argue one of the things our empirical surveys are not actually capturing, I think, is our surveys are very good at capturing the dynamics of distribution, right? As Pradeep's survey pointed out, do you see a particular group as a threat in competition for jobs, right? They are also good at capturing some element of prejudice, as Pradeep's and Francesca's surveys have actually pointed out, right? What they are not very good at capturing is what would be the kind of ethical imagination that citizens would like to place themselves in relation to these other groups. And I would argue part of the reason for that, right, is that the ethical cost of, in a sense, extending a instrument and an ethical discourse that was specific to Dalits to large numbers of other groups has been the complete marginalization of that ethical question. So what does the rest of society say? How do we know we become a just society? We've given 20% reservation to Dalits in proportion to their population, right? 
our ethical obligations are over at that point, right? So the, the move whereby what was a policy designed with, you might say, an ethical foundation, not just a redistributive foundation, those are linked, but they're not necessarily the same thing, right? When a policy designed for an ethical objective simply becomes or gets converted into a policy for power sharing, right? What does it do to the underlying ethical discourse of society? And I think that's, a, that's an interesting, I think, sociological question that I think with now hindsight 60, 60, 70 years of reservations that I think we will need to, I think, I think, I think ask and I think Francesca's book allows us to get at this. But the pol political paradox, and this is what I want to end at, is that Pradeep's uh, research is fascinating because it's showing the possibility of intra-minority conflict. And he was talking particularly about OBC and Dalit uh, conflict. But as we know, the current political conjuncture in the politics of quotas is marked by two different paradoxes. One is, on the ground, the OBC Dalit tensions are palpable in certain geographical areas. Yet, many Dalits still believe that on the question of quotas, an alliance with the OBCs is necessary because it will give them the political numbers to be able to preserve whatever quotas exist for Dalits, right? In that sense, quota politics has become a new form of majoritarian politics, not minority politics. And the second paradox is that the intra-minority conflicts that you are actually beginning to see politically are ones that are emerging within SC and Dalit politics much more profoundly, right? Uh, which is to say between subcasts of Dalits, Jatavs and Chamars and UPs, these always existed, right? But it's becoming very clear that the paradigm of quota politics is running up against severe limitations in being able to address those kinds of distributive conflicts, right? And one of the things it is doing is that it is opening up a very different kind of political space in a form that we did not think was possible 15, 20 years ago, right? So if you look at the last, last, last UP election, the Dalit vote is kind of split two and a half ways, right? When voting patterns begin to split in this way, right? Again, two consequences can follow. On the one hand, you can read that as a story of integration. Right? You can begin to say that when caste and voting patterns are no longer so easily correlated, right? this is a form of political integration. Right? Or you can read it another way, which is to say that the conditions are being created where the kinds of united collective political mobilization that Dalit consciousness needs in order to be able to assert the interest that Francesca is interested in, right? where you know, Dalit interests are actually, in a sense, being catered to, those political coalitions are actually going to weaken, not get stronger. And I'd be very curious to see which direction you think Dalit politics is actually going to go at this moment. L last, <laughs> just last collective thought, and this is just a plea to social scientists as much as to, uh, I think, Indian politics, which is, um, 
As social scientists, we love thinking about variables. But one of the interesting challenges for us is how much selection bias there is in the variables that we actually look at. Uh, and the selection bias is often a function of what data is available, right? In politics, as in social science, there's a kind of common thread running about what the implicit selection bias we've taken on board is. And, and I just want to illustrate it with an example. Okay? So if today you were to say that a Dalit politician needs to be more assertive on behalf of, let's say, SC interests, and the system design is preventing them from doing so, which, which is absolutely spot on. I mean, Francesca is just so right on this, right? That this was a system of reservation designed to de-radicalize Dalit politics, not to make it more radical, right? But if you were to ask the question, what would a more radical Dalit politics look like, right? The interesting dilemma is that right now the only articulation of a more radically assertive group politics is actually more reservations. I have almost never seen, right? I mean, this is not just true of Dalit politicians, it's true of politicians across the board. Any politician getting upset about the quality of schools and universities in India, right? As a mark of their radical commitment to state-funded education or that the state can do it, right? The articulation will always be, in a sense, confined to we need more quotas, more, more allocation, not what the quality of the institutions you're actually bringing them, bringing them to. Right? So the question is, does this form of group identity right, actually crowd out right, some of the most important questions that should be upfront and central in politics? Right? So it's not just that they're not being more effective, but because you have this as an axis, representation as an axis of mobilization, does representation as an axis of mobilization, does it have the unintended consequence right, of actually depoliticizing other questions that may be equally uh, 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 important? And it's reflected in social science research as well, right, in the sense that for long time there hasn't been any consideration of what alternatives might be to designing identity-based quota systems that achieve same outcomes. One possible proposal, for example, is to just to take parents' education as a proxy, right? Which would cover all existing Dalits, but not be a identity-based representation. Why is that so much off the agenda, even as we think of designing quotas? Uh, why is our first recourse and last recourse always identity in this way? Thank you so much. Uh, Francesca, you wanted answers. I think you got more questions, <laughs> but I'll give you the floor now to respond. But I also want to invite all of you to uh, sort of participate and contribute your comments and questions. I'll open the floor after Francesca has given her comments and then return to the panel. We have another 20 minutes or so. Mm. 
Well, thank you so much. I, I hope you can all see why I'm so excited to get these three people to come and comment, right? I think I'm, I've, I feel so happy that they've been a part of my intellectual community um, because they always have something very interesting to come with. Um, I, of course, can't address everything you talked about, and I really want to hear what uh, people in the audience have to say, but um, I want to, first of all, I want to thank Pradeep for giving me fun data, because that's, he is absolutely right, it makes me delighted, and I was so happy to see that you actually do provide then experimental evidence of the patterns that I haven't had good data for, on, on these, um, the reduction in discrimination. So you actually show that the discrimination uh, prejudice prompt is not as effective in a reserved area. There is evidence of a reduced discrimination against Dalit in those areas. Is it consistent with what I do? So it makes me very happy. Um, in response, I think, to both Anne and Pratap, I want to say something about, I think you're absolutely right in opening this box. So this is really about what is representation which is a difficult question that I've gotten myself into. Um, and what I have spent a lot of time thinking about is this issue of what is Dalit interests and what is women's interests? And do we really want politicians that primarily work for Dalit interests or women's interests? Is that something we, we, that's good for our democracy? And the way I think about it is that I do say that because of the incentive structure of the quota system in India, you do not get SE representatives who act much in favor of SEs, and I think most people would agree with that, and some people I interviewed uh, commented on this. Some SEs are very against the quotas and say, these quotas have undermined the revolution. They've undermined the possibility of mobilizing around an identity because this, um, ha this integrating effects reduces their radical nature, it uh, depoliticizes the, the, the identity, um, and I think you're absolutely right that it's actually the electoral system itself that does that. In first-past-the-post systems, you have to b build broad coalitions to win. So it undermines any form of group identity. Does that mean that you will never see people working for group interest? No. I think the extent to which you'll see group interests um, articulated and, and politicized is the extent that people have a shared grievance. And so you will see an articulation of women's interests when women are systematically marginalized, excluded, uh, um, something that a lot of women have in common. So for example, women are often able to mobilize around the abortion issue, uh, uh, you know, uh, maternal leave, issues that are clearly woman-related. Once those issues have been addressed legally and are off the agenda, then women often have less in common, right? So the extent to which a group will mobilize and have interests is to the extent that they have a shared issue and grievance. And the same goes for SCs. To the extent that there are laws that systematically exclude them from wells or temples of public spaces, and to the extent that they are systematically excluded from situations, then they have something in common. When that has been dealt with legally, they sort of don't have that much in common anymore. And so what happens with the pretty amazing Indian constitution is that legally, a lot of their grievances were addressed. What was remained was mainly uh, a social stigma and a social bias, which is hard to legislate away. And so in that sense, they do actually not have that much in common with each other, because most of them are um, agricultural laborers, which a lot of non-SCs are as well. So that what they have in common is actually more economic. And so in that sense, a group-oriented mobilization will undercut their ability to uh, create political coalitions with others who share their economic point of view. 
And that is also something that's raised a lot in India, that uh, because of this focus on groups, you actually undermine the potential for a class uh, mobilization, which could perhaps make more sense uh, and be more revolutionary in some ways. Right? But, but um, at the same time, which kind of mobilization we want, what kind of representation we want, that's actually the core question. It makes me so happy that you think that what I've done has opened up the space for thinking about this because they're important and difficult questions for which I definitely don't have the, all the answers. But you tell uh, us when will Dalit situation improve? He asked <coughs> you the question. Which one? <laughs> yeah. What will happen to Dalit? Uh, give us an answer in numbers, years, five, seven, eight, just kidding. <laughs> don't have to answer it. No, 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 but I'm thinking, <laughs> I did have something I wanted to say, but I've forgotten right now, so okay. I'll, I'll leave to others and then I'll come with a brilliant answer later if it You'll comes back to You'll get the final me. word, so. <laughs> Anybody want to have anything? Yes? experiences, they are so deeply bodily, linked in what uh, Bourdieu might call the habitus. It's very experience of life, which is constituting the meeting with other people, which is very different from the meeting with, let's say, an OBC and an upper caste, the way the Dalits meet other people on a daily, on a daily basis or don't meet them, has a completely different character to it. It has a completely different kind of destitution and marginalization and hierarchy built into it. How is it possible to take care of those experiences and make meaning into it, or make them produce meaning within the concepts of group, interest, clashes between groups, group prejudices, you know? Yeah, I just allude to, to, to uh, the work of Dumont and those people, you know. Thank you, Torvald. Uh, is there anybody else who wants to have anything to add? Otherwise, I'll, you can, yes. So, Doug Eric, Doug, just wait for the microphone. Thanks for the presentations. Um, is this on? Just a sh short um, follow-up on, uh, on your last comment regarding uh, material uh, differences in interests. Um, could it say something more about uh, land reforms, in the history of land reforms in India, or the lack of it? I mean, compared to other regimes elsewhere in, uh, in the world, there have been massive land reforms. Uh, in India, you have huge, uh, a huge uh, reproduction of feudal uh, uh, structure, and, uh, and many of those who are recruited into the schools are uh, extremely poor, and, uh, and uh, they're hardly able to to uh, to keep up working uh, studying in school because of the situation the economic situation at home so if you could uh, say something about uh, uh, representation as a mean to uh, means to development compared to land reforms that could be interesting to hear kavita just uh, very quickly, uh, I would also like to know like what, uh, building on what Pratap is saying, that um, 
representation acting as an access for uh, you know removing discrimination or all the ethical issues which are involved but i i just gathered that uh, we talk a lot about for example pradeep is also talking about this um, inter minority conflicts that might exist or prejudices but what about the intra community prejudices that exist within communities, and especially how the institutionalization through, uh, for example, the quota system, it not only de-radicalizes uh, the movement or the, you know, the uh, mobilization, but it also creates uh, these elites within uh, the communities, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll, I'll just return uh, to the panel and let all of you address both these questions and also questions that you might have to each other. Would you, Patak, maybe you want to start? Yeah, you start. The last. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, I think, again, just building on something Francesca said, as a partly as response to your question, may not be a full, full response. I think. I think this is, so one of the interesting things that I think comes out of her research, which uh, I think, you know, at some point I'd love to hear more about, is, you, you know, the anecdote she began with, right? This SC politician who says, I've not experienced prejudice, but I have friends who have, right? And one of the things that that powerfully indicates is, a certain kind of instrumentalization of identity and hierarchy, right? And one of the great achievements of modern India has been that whatever the hierarchy, politics is almost always a top, right? I mean, you know, in, in, in that sense, I mean, and, 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 and the passion for politics comes from the fact that it's possibly the only space where people think this norm can be enacted and institutionalized. It's not going to be done in family. It's not going to be done in civil society. It's not even going to be done in markets. I mean, all the markets are anonymous, but they come with, in a sense, those, right? Uh, but I think what, but what I think people have been surprised by, I think, and, and this is something that, at least to me, is a big puzzle, where you can actually institutionalize that norm very sincerely in politics. So I don't think the politicians are being insincere or this person is being insincere, saying I haven't experienced discrimination, or his constituents are being insincere towards him, right? But the spillover effects from its institutionalization as a norm in politics, right, to other forms of social change, uh, we don't understand that mechanism, those mechanisms so much. And to me, the, first, the, the best example of that, which speaks to your point, is I think Tamil Nadu, right? At one level, this is a state with the most intense anti-caste, anti-upper caste mobilizations. Probably the more progressive development welfare state of many of the states in India, right? In, I mean, it's, it's, it's a comparative statement in some ways, right? And yet the continued institutionalization and entrenchment of caste, right? Arguably, actually, even more deeply than, than Uttar Pradesh in, 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 in some respects, right? This is a paradox I don't think we fully, fully, fully understand. Um, and I think, I think that's, that's really, I think, one of the big questions that comes out of your, your work. 
No, um, I'll, it was on the SCs. I feel I uh, leave it to <laughs> at least for now. Yeah. Mm. You want to go for let, me, let me answer the question in group interest. I agree. We political science, we like to flatten things. And we like to flatten things. And we flatten them because we think somehow we can compare things. So weakness acknowledged, right? I think, I think that's fair. Let me pose a slightly different question. And I'm going to take Pratap's question and turn it around for all of us to think about. Because this is something Francesca's work talks about, gets at, but doesn't raise explicitly, which is since when did we expect and this is a robust debate in India, by the way, and we can talk about this more if you want, that it is the job of a representative democracy, and I'm using those words carefully, mm -hmm. not liberal, not anything, representative democracy to change social norms. Yeah. Since when did we expect that? What is the theoretical basis for expecting that? Right? And I don't know if there's a good answer. And within India, and we, have, we can agree or disagree on this, but there is a pretty well-established idea, for good or bad, that the job of the state is not to mess with social norms. And the big debate in India is, should the state be messing with social norms, or should it not be messing with social norms? People like Nambedkar and Nehru would like the state to upend society. Mm -hmm. Conservatives do not agree that that is how, what a state should be doing. And I think that's something we need to ask ourselves. When you implant liberal representative democracy in this context, why do we expect it to change social norms? And that's a question back to Pratap. But he and I can have a long conversation on that when we are walking away. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I must say, I think that's a great question. And, and I think, um, and I see, see here and I, I, I mean, most of our research is really about how and in what ways the state changes social norms. States do change no social norms. Um, and I think in these times where in a lot of democracies we see that leaders are elected that many of us might not like or want to be leaders. What, what's the matter? <laughs> it's, it, it, no, no, but, but then, it's, that's it, then it's interesting to think about, well, it's kind of an elitist, and elitist perspective to want the state to come in and change how people think in a society. Right? But, but can the state avoid? Is there a neutral? Uh, can the, won't any form of organizing of the state influence the norms of society? It will. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I'm asking, I'm just asking the, it is a question that yeah. came to my mind. Yeah, which is yeah, the no, it's very interesting. Not liberal democracy, a representative yeah. democracy. Yeah, yeah lead to changes in social norms. Why should it lead to that? What are the conditions under mm. which it should lead to that, right? It it's could just be a simple arrangement for power sharing. Yeah, it's yeah. And maybe nothing more. And I think a lot of us do want it to change social norms. I think I do. I think a lot of people do. And I think the, the question Pratap asked me as well, uh, why should we expect SC politicians to create more development for SCs? Well, I don't know. I've told you a story where we shouldn't expect it, but people do expect it. Mm. And that's the main thing when I interview people, they tell me, oh, it's so terrible because it didn't change SC development. And I think we see it in lots of countries and lots of contexts where people do expect it. And people, a lot of people say about female leaders, women leaders in the world that, oh, she's not a proper leader because she didn't work for women's interests. It's a failure that she's in power. And I'm thinking, well, it's not a failure that she's in power. She worked on something else she wanted to work on. And for me, it's a, it's a sign of more equality if people are allowed to become representative and work on whatever they work on. It doesn't necessarily mean I support them politically, but I think it's 
I, I see it as, as good if people can, can work for whatever they're interested in. Um, but I think what we've just done is again open up for lots of the things we're interested in and we find fascinating. Um, and I, you know, I guess we should end there because it's 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 time to wrap up. But, let, but, uh, there, but the, the we'd we love to continue these discussions with all of you. <laughs> we still have a couple of minutes. Anne? Yeah. Yes. Um, just on that of um, changing the norms. Um, then I, I'm thinking that um, state policies, as you say, cannot change the norms. And also my little qualitative research show that it doesn't change the norms. Um, but we pit, put women or SEs in power in order to sort of have representative a symbolic effect. And that might change something, people say. But being more materialist in my thinking, uh, I actually think that your uh, question at the end about why not give quotas based on socioeconomic factors, uh, income, uh, economics, that if you give more uh, the many poor in India, I mean, there are great poverty in India. If you base quotas on that, then at least you might give something, or, or uh, not maybe quotas in politics, but at least quotas in education uh, and uh, in, in jobs. That might uh, make a change in terms of having people get a better life. And then uh, we see many places, but uh, uh, there's no sort of one way there. But that, I think, might also uh, change uh, norms in the long run. Thank you. Uh, I think I would just like to end uh, by saying that this is a really, really good place to end, because those of you who want to follow the next seminars over the next couple of days on the Holberg Prize, will continue to be sort of dealing with these issues of whether institutions, whether norms can and do and should maybe change social norms. What's the job of it? And I think, I mean, if you look at criminal law, for instance, I think the expressive function of law, trying, signaling, trying to change social norms is very central. But still we know, we don't know a lot about when it does, not sufficiently, and also I think that the discussion about when, what type of norms it should try and change or not is a really, really interesting and fruitful discussion, and I think it can be sort of usefully taken into the next, next couple of days. So thank you all for coming, and congratulations again. Well, thank you. This concludes this year's Nils Klim uh, seminar. I want to thank the panel speakers, uh, the Nils Klim laureate, Francesca, uh, for their contributions. And I'm sure the discussions will continue on. And thank you, Sidi uh, Glopen, for moderating uh, the event. So we hope to see you all tomorrow at the uh, 2018 Holberg Symposium on Democracy and Truth at the University Aula between 9 and uh, 1. And then, of course, Cass Sunstein's Holberg Lecture on Freedom at 2 p.m. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.